Please stand as you are able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 through 28. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory about to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the children of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its enslavement to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together as it suffers together the pains of labor. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan, inward, groan inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what one already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we ought. But that very Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And God, who searches hearts and knows what is in the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Well, Judy, thank you so much for reading our lesson and greetings to each of you in the name of Christ. It is uh, hard to believe this is the last Sunday of the month of June. We're thick into the summer uh, series and we welcome each of you who are in person and especially want to say a word of welcome to those of you who are with us online. Uh, many are on vacation and taking trips and we're grateful that you've joined us wherever you are and uh, what a joy it is to share God's word with each of you today. We're also grateful that our middle schoolers returned safely on Friday from their mission trip uh, to Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, all 27 who went came back, and that's always a good sign. We're grateful for them and their counselors, uh, worship and arts, some of our worship and arts team uh, were in Lake Genaluska, North Carolina last week, and they returned safely, uh, and we're grateful for that as well. Uh, Casey has already mentioned Vacation Bible School, and we're remembering uh, all of our friends uh, in ministry uh, this week, and uh, all of our kids that will be with us. What a special joy that will be for each of them. And also today, uh, at our benediction, we'll be recognizing and celebrating the ministry of Dr. Laura Brantley. Many of you know that this is her last Sunday in this capacity on our staff. She'll be beginning uh, a new ministry in the Counseling Center uh, in terms of spiritual life and direction that we are very, very excited about for her. It is bittersweet, however. Uh, she has been here among us for a decade in ministry in, in, as a part of the staff, but 20 years as a member of the church. And uh, Brian and Sarah and Heather will continue to affiliate with us and be a part of our ministry. But uh, Laura, we're so Where did you go, Laura? There you are, back here. We're so grateful to you. And we look forward to sharing special words with you during our benediction. 
If you were here last week, you know that we started a new series, a summer series called Life Verses. And it's around the idea that many of us have specific passages of Scripture that are dear to our hearts, that are especially meaningful to us, maybe that we learned at Vacation Bible School, maybe we learned as a child or in a difficult period that we were facing and, and committed that verse, that passage to memory. They're engraved in our hearts and they've seen us through some difficult times, both sorrowful and joyful. We call them life verses. I'm thinking about a book that Frank W. Borum wrote. It's a series of books, there are five volumes, and the book is the same title as our theme, Life Verses. And in these five volumes, Dr. Borum describes the impact of Scripture on these renowned saints of God, from Luther to Wesley to William Carey, all historical figures and saints of God. And he goes through one at a time and gives to us their life verses. I'll give you a couple of them. For example, Martin Luther's life verse, according to Dr. Borum, is Romans 1, 16 and 17. You know that verse? I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for all who believe, for the Jew first, also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, for as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Mr. Wesley, John Wesley's text, life verse, was Ephesians 2, 8. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I was thinking about life verses, and in fact, I, I asked our lead team to submit to me their life verses, thinking that you might be interested in that as well. Uh, Casey Orr cited, uh, among others, Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Leslie Hotsfeld gave us 2 Timothy 1, 7, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Adam Jones cited John 1, 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Adam told me it was that verse that meant so much to him when his mother passed away. Susan Graham, our lay leader, submitted Colossians 3, 12. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And over and above all of these, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect harmony. Greg Bunn gave us Micah 6, 8, which we'll talk about next Sunday. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God? Laura Brantley, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. But we have this treasure in clay jars so that it may be abundantly clear that this extraordinary power belongs to God and does not come from us. And last and least, mine, which comes from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. We just finished a series on that. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited, but he emptied himself into the form of a servant. 
In fact, we have put a website, and we're asking you today just to mark that website, uh, info at bmc.net, and send me your life verses. We're compiling those and would like to share those in a larger way with you. All of that to say, as disciples of Jesus, we are necessarily a biblical people. St. Augustine said it best, I think. He said, the Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. You remember what that felt like? You have to be under 50, I guess, to remember what it felt like in college to get a letter from home. The Holy Scriptures are our letters from home. Now, mind you, we don't all interpret Scripture in exactly the same way, and I've discovered that that bothers us more than it bothers God. But it is necessarily, we are necessarily a biblical people. Judy, you read for us Romans chapter 8. I, I think that's a high watermark in sacred literature. If you go back before Romans 8, the first seven chapters of Romans is heavy, heavy theology. Paul covers the nature of sin. He covers the natural law, justification, converting grace, sanctification, ongoing grace, and the ultimate hope, of course, of our glorification when we are at one with God eternally. But the chapter as a whole, chapter 8 in Romans, begins and ends with assurance. Listen to verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's verse 1. The last verse, verse 39, says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So the bookends of the chapter, no condemnation, no separation. And in between these two affirmations is this life verse. Maybe this is your life verse. In fact, let's, let's read it together. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Once again, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. I've heard that all of my life. In fact, there have been times that, I, that I've read it that I've thought that's almost too good to be true. And so what does it mean? I want to begin by saying what I think it doesn't mean. The verse doesn't mean that everything that happens to us is good. Uh, we couldn't believe that if Paul wrote it. It doesn't mean that. Uh, I've noticed there's an expression that we use these days that I, I've said it myself. When, when you ask somebody, how's it going? Uh, we often respond by saying, it's all good. You've said that, you've heard that. I said it to one of our men the other day. I said, how are you doing? He said, well, uh, honestly, my family has COVID. Uh, I can't afford to fill my gas tank. I, I lost my job. My wife moved out and the bank foreclosed on my house. But it's all good. <laughs> we don't mean it. We're trying to rise above it without having a nervous breakdown or falling apart. But the truth of the matter is, it ain't all good. I think that's part of the reason that at least one-third of the book of Psalms, that's the Hebrew hymn book in the middle of your Bible, one-third of those Psalms are made up of complaints, venting to God, prayers to God, lament, anguish. 
And to hide that, I've often said it's kind of like forgetting to raise the flu on your fireplace. When, when you don't channel that towards God, when we don't channel that grief towards God, it's going to blow up the house sometimes. But the Psalms, that's God's way of giving us permission to express that deep sense of grief, which sometimes doesn't really have words. It's more groaning, as Paul says in Romans 8, because not everything that happens is good. Moreover, I would also say this, not everything that happens to us is of God. Though not, only, not everybody believes that, there is a brand of theology, and you've heard it, that essentially says that everything that happens to us, good, bad, or indifferent, is ultimately traceable to God. I don't believe that's so, and I'll tell you why. Some of the issues, some of the difficulties that I've faced in my life, frankly, have been self-inflicted wounds. I wish I could blame God for my sins, but I cannot. And the truth is that God doesn't necessarily protect us from the consequences of our own sinful choices. That wouldn't be love at all. That would be codependency. That would be enabling on the other hand, some of the hardships that we face are the result not of our own doing, but of natural tragedy. In fact, we cannot explain some of that, and any effort to do so will probably do more harm than good. I think, I think of Job. You remember Job? Part of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament. He lost everything. In the whirlwind, the tornado, he lost his cattle, he lost his livestock, his land, lost his house, his health, his children. And friends from the church, probably Stephen ministers, who had not been well trained, came by. And when they saw him, the scripture says, they sat down in silence and they wept for a whole week. It's very comforting. But after seven days, the scripture says they became restless with silence and they felt the need to say a word on behalf of God to explain this man's suffering. And at that point, the comfort ended and so did the friendship. There are some things that at least to us are inexplicable and to try to explain someone else's suffering does more harm than good. Not everything that happens is good, and not everything that happens is caused by God. I'll give you another example. You remember in John, John's Gospel, chapter 9, Jesus and friends were walking one day and they encountered a blind man. It's interesting that John details that this man was actually born blind. In other words, it was congenital. And the disciples were confused. He had not been stricken blind. It was congenital. And they came to Jesus with this interesting question. Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And the question itself reveals the theology of the day that there were many who believed that any and all suffering had to be the result of sin. 
And so in their minds, if a child is born with a defect or an infirmity, it was either due to parental sin or prenatal sin. There was a concept in the first century in their theology, believe it or not, there were those who believed it was possible for the fetus to sin within the womb. And that kind of doctrine is the result of our human need to explain the inexplicable. To explain affliction because there was a belief that if you can explain it, then you can avoid it. You can protect yourself from it. Who sinned that this man was born blind. Jesus didn't answer the question as they ask it. He didn't respond in terms of cause. He responded in terms of effect. Listen to what he said. Neither this man nor his parents sinned. No, he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. And with that, Jesus touched his eyes and healed him. The moral to that story, at least to me, is that sometimes our hardship, sometimes our suffering creates a deeper dependence on God, not caused by God, but sometimes our suffering has a way of actually giving glory to God more than my success. And I don't pretend to understand all of that, but I know it to be true. So Paul's not saying that everything that happens is good, nor that everything that happens is of God. So what is Paul saying? I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> He's saying everything that happens can be used by God for good. You're saying seriously? Seriously. Even the bad stuff? Yes. Even the evil that I didn't do but happened to me could be used for? Yes. Even the distress? Even the mistakes? Yes. Why? Because God has this unique knack for making something out of nothing. God who created all that is has the capacity to make order out of our chaos, good out of our evil. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. He can even make life out of death. In fact, I've discovered this key point. Even when the world is up to no good, God is up to good. It's not about causality. It's, it's not, the question is not about whether God allows or disallows. It's what we become as a result of that. This is not about cause. This is about providence. Listen, in all things, in all things, God works for good for them that love him, that are called, watch this, according to his what? Purpose. According to whose purpose? Mine? <laughs> no. Yours? His. Now, the best example of providence that I can think of is the example of Joseph in the Old Testament. I want to review, review his story very briefly and then draw to a close. According to the book of Genesis, Joseph was one of 12 sons 
of Jacob, later called Israel. He was his daddy's pet. He was the baby of the family, the runt of the litter. And you may remember that to show Joseph his favoritism, his daddy gave him a beautiful coat. We call it the coat of many colors. Our youth several years ago did that play, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And it wasn't that he gave him this coat. The problem with his siblings is that Joseph wore it in their presence. He was a snitch. He was a whistleblower. He was a tattletale. Genesis 37 says Joseph one day gave a bad report to his daddy about his brothers, and that didn't go over. He had a big head. He could strut while sitting down. Got worse as a teenager. It usually does. And he was a dreamer. He was always the hero of his own dreams. And I guess that's okay, but you shouldn't tell your siblings about your dreams when you're the hero of your own dreams. And they'd had it. And so they got together out in the field and they hatched a little plan. They threw him in a pit. They sold him to a group of gypsies, Midianites, bound for Egypt. And meanwhile, they took his coat, that beautiful coat, and they dipped it into a lamb's blood and they concocted a tale to their daddy to say that Joseph isn't coming home. When Joe got to Egypt, things went from bad to worse. He went to work for a man named Potiphar. Potiphar's wife accused him falsely of sexual harassment, which led to his incarceration for two years. But in prison, he did what a good Hebrew would do. He started a little small group. <laughs> and he began to interpret the dreams of his cellmates and the Pharaoh heard about him and invited him to interpret his dreams. One of Pharaoh's dreams involved a famine. Joseph foresaw the drought coming, and Pharaoh, following Joe's advice, stockpiled the crops for seven years. And sure enough, the famine came, and Joe was right. In fact, he became so revered that he rose to the position of prime minister of Egypt Meanwhile, back in Canaan, the sons of Jacob heard that Egypt had food. And so they requested an audience with the prime minister, not knowing that it was their brother. They didn't recognize him. Joseph played with them. He toyed with them. He asked, are there other brothers? They said, yes, there is one who was born later in our father's life, Benjamin. But you don't want him. He said, go, find, go bring him and I'll give you food. And you remember what happened? Toying with them. They brought their younger brother, Benjamin, back, and he gave them food. And as they were leaving, he planted his silver cup in Benjamin's bag. And as soon as they left, he called his guards security to pursue them and search for the cup. And they found it in Benjamin's bag, which was a capital crime. The brothers were beside themselves, and it was Judah, the older boy, who pled for Benjamin's life. He explained to his father that his dad had lost one son, he couldn't bear another, and Judah offered his own life for that of Benjamin. And when he did, it broke Joseph. All that grief, all those years came out in size too deep for words. And the scripture says he took off the royal garb 
and said, surprise, remember me. Can you imagine the fear in those boys? Joseph had him on the ropes, and then he gave his life verse. Don't be afraid. What you intended for evil, God has used for good. In other words, in all things, God is up to good. Now I want you to think about the ramifications of that for a minute. If those boys don't throw Joe into the pit, he will never be sold to the Midianites. And if he's never sold to the Midianites, he never travels to Egypt. If he never gets to Egypt, he never works for Potiphar. If he never works for Potiphar, he's never falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. If he's never falsely accused, he never goes to jail. If he never goes to jail, he never interprets the dreams. If he never interprets the dreams, he never meets the Pharaoh. If he never meets the Pharaoh, he never predicts the famine. No famine, they never stockpile the food. If they don't stockpile the food, the Egyptians are extinct. And if the Egyptians are gone, Jacob and sons will die of starvation. What man meant for evil, God used for good. There's a word for that. It's called providence. Now this isn't in the Bible. This is the Revised Chapel version. But I'm pretty sure about a decade after all that happened, that there was a reporter from the Egyptian Post that had an interview with Joseph, and he asked him two questions. The first was this, Joseph, what was the worst thing that ever happened to you? And he said, when, when my brothers threw me in the pit. Joseph, what was the best thing that ever happened to you? When my brothers threw me into the pit. Not everything that happens is good. Not everything that happens is of God. But we know that in all things, God is up to good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It's called providence. And providence has a cause in God. Last word. You all know the name Wendell Berry, right? Writer, essayist, poet. He's 87 years of age, Henry County, Kentucky, his home. He's a farmer, among other things. He wrote a little novel a while back and called it after the name of the lead character, Jaber Crow, who for many years thought of being a minister. He was a man of good nature, of good faith, became a barber, and found his ministry shaving others' necks. Uh, I've discovered that the pastor and the barber will always have vocational security. And the bartender probably too. At one point in the book, Jaber looks back on his long life and he reflects on how God's providence often catches us by surprise. These are Jaber's words. I can't look back from where I am now and feel that I have been very much in charge of my life. Oh, I've made plans enough, but I see now that I have never lived by my own plan, 
Nearly everything that has happened to me has happened by surprise. All the important things have happened by surprise. And whatever has been happening usually has happened before I had time to expect it or prepare for it. And so when I have thought I was in my own story and in charge of it, I've really been on the edge of it. I've been carried along, perhaps because we are in an eternal story that is happening only partly in time. <laughs> what Wendell Berry is saying through Jaber is in all things, even when the world is up to no good, God is up to good. We hope for it looking forward, but we know it looking back. All things in Jesus' name.